When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the year of our hosts, 1990, director Chris <laughs> Columbus and star Catherine O'Hara gave the world a heartwarming hilarity that made its mark in the world of holiday classics. In 2024, we finally return to the home of bourbon. The film is Home Alone. The whiskey is Lexington Bourbon. More review them both. This is The Film and Whiskey, whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And today we are looking at the 1990 highest grosser, Home Alone. Dude, uh, for all the movies that could be the highest grosser, the year that you and I were born, mm. Bob, how do you feel about it being Home Alone? I feel pretty good. I mean, it's a movie that has stuck around in the cultural consciousness and especially compared to some of the other Christmas movies that, you know, we've been offered in the years since. It's a really <laughs> good movie, Brad. And it like it left its mark. It is fondly remembered. Is it a perfect movie? No. But like there's a whole bunch of 1990 movies that could have been the highest grosser. I'm pretty glad it's this one. Yeah, I, I don't honestly even know any other big movies in 90. I mean, I guess Goodfellas yeah. was 90. Is that correct? Yes. So what uh, what uh, what were some other contenders here, Robert? I believe that the Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore movie Ghost came out in 1990. That was a huge box office draw. Uh, the Best Picture winner was Kevin Costner's Dances with Wolves, a movie that to this day I still have not seen. I hear it's very Nor good, have I. but it's also three hours long. So it's just, you know, <laughs> when I get to sit down and watch a movie at like 11 p.m. after my kids have finally fallen asleep, uh, I'm not firing that one up anytime soon. Yeah, that that that's always been the drawback for me is everybody talks about Dance with Wolves. They're like, oh, great movie. Way too long. <laughs> uh, we're just going to say sight unseen. It's too long. You should have cut some <laughs> yes. some out of it. Kevin Costner has <laughs> about 30, 40 minutes of uh, fat. They could have trimmed <laughs> it's off. just too flabby. You know what isn't too flabby, though? The one hour and 44 minute Home Alone. Mm. Dude, what a what a great runtime. Mm. Not quite the 90 minute masterpiece, Mark. But man, oh, man, this is a quick film that you can watch with your kids. You can watch it with your parents. Mm -hmm. Everybody loves this movie. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, Bob, it's really fun. It's a fun movie. I think yeah. the place to start, because there's a lot to say about this movie, uh, is to say that this is the second film we've done on the podcast with some involvement from John Hughes. We did The Breakfast Club way back in like season two or three. This is not a John Hughes directed film, but it is written by John Hughes. It has a ton of his hallmarks, especially the Chicagoland setting. And like, I think that there's some some pretty obvious John Hughesy dialogue. Uh, but one of the things that stuck out to me, Brad, and, you know, for a certain generation, John Hughes movies defined their childhood and teenage years. I think on this watch through. What really stuck out is just how mean everyone was to each other in 1990. <laughs> like just a a nation of mean spirited people. Until Macaulay Culkin brings happiness and joy to our lives in the form of brutal violence. <laughs> brutal violence. <laughs> Dude, it's so it's so good, man. I, there's something about the violence in this that. I don't know, man. It feels nostalgic. Mm. Like, yeah, it, it, it reminded it, us of all those corporal punishments we endured as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, simpler times, Brad. I, I mean, the meanness for me wasn't the the violence of Kevin. It was the, uh, insert the emotional damage meme here, the emotional damage that Kevin's family wreaks upon oh him. Oh, my gosh. Is 
brutal. And like he, he mean, does very little to even get in trouble for. And they're, you know, like yeah. he has grown men being like, you're a jerk, you little <laughs> that was, jerk. I He said that. What is his name? Uncle Frank. It was Frank. Uh, it had, it, of course, it's Uncle Frank. Yeah. So here's the deal. I don't think I've ever really noticed Uncle Frank in any other watch through. He stuck out to me like a sore thumb in this film of like, F this guy. Oh, he's I the know worst. That, I know that they're making him to be the worst, but I fully bought in this time through where I'm like, why do you have to suck so much? When he called Kevin a jerk, you little jerk. I looked at Haley because we were watching it together and I was like, if my brother ever, ever looked at my child and said those words in that tone. Oh, them's fighting words. I would literally probably walk over and punch him in the face. Yeah. Be like you don't talk to my children like that. So what we're really what we're really uh, interrogating today is Kevin's dad's masculinity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> honestly, I mean John Hurd's not not quite the most masculine man. I mean they make it very clear that Catherine O'Hara wears the pants in this relationship. Oh yes, literally <laughs> like the, and metaphorically the, the she, suit pant yes. pants. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. We've kind of talked around a lot of this movie so far. I think that it's time for us to get into talking about the film itself, and we're going to do that with our first segment of the day, Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock, so let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, how many times do you think you have actually seen this movie before? Oh, probably eight to ten, mm. I would guess. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't watch it a ton as a kid, um, but I remember watching it. And so throughout the years, you know, it's when you're in college, I probably watched it once or twice with friends. Since college, I've watched it once or twice, pro- probably around eight to ten times. Well, I imagine that most people listening to this episode have seen Home Alone at least once. It is in constant rotation around Christmas time. Uh, I I do want to give myself a pat on the back for my timing in releasing this episode, because if there's ever a time that people want to hear about Christmas, it is directly after Christmas. So the not even directly after it's it's like, when is this coming out? January like 18th? Yeah, it's like it's towards the end of January. It is. We have we have gone through Christmas fatigue and Christmas burnout, and now we've just entered Christmas apathy season. It's a perfect time to release this. Yeah. It's it's wonderful, man. People are giving up on their New Year's resolutions. Mm. They're they're in a low place. Maybe you know what they might need, Bob? A little dose of Christmas spirit. That's true. And I think that you're going to bring it by breaking down this movie. So you have 60 seconds on the clock. This is a spoiler filled review or synopsis rather of Home Alone. <laughs> Brad, can you do it in one minute or less? I might be able to. Home Alone is a film about a family called the McAllisters. They are heading to Paris to visit some family. And in the midst of packing and getting things ready, Kevin causes all sorts of mayhem and trouble, for which his family berates him mercilessly. He wishes that they would disappear and he would never have to deal with them again. And that night, power shuts down in their house. A storm shuts down power in their house. The family wakes up late, rushes off to the airport. There's a miscounting mishap, and Kevin gets left home. Yeah, wait for it, Bob. Home alone. What? For about three or four days. In that process, his family is trying to get home. Catherine O'Hara, his mother, is trying desperately to get home. Two burglars try to break into his house multiple times. They finally realize that it's just a kid there, and they attempt to break into the home. One last time, and in that evening, Kevin defends his home from all intruders. Boom. Uh, in, in a fight to the death. In a fight <laughs> to the <laughs> what should be death. Yes. Many times over. <laughs> There's just so many great, like, I, Columbus just has this ability to hold shots for like 1.7 seconds when they should be like 0.8. Yes. Especially like, like, like in between lines of dialogue. There's always these yep. awkward pauses. Every time Macaulay Culkin has to deliver a line of dialogue, it's like they cut to him for a full second before he responds. Yeah, it's it's brutal, man. I, I was thinking of when uh, when Pesci's head gets caught on fire and it like 
it's almost like they freeze framed it, but kept the audio going and his face is just like contorted in pain. And it goes on for like, I don't know, a little over two seconds and it didn't need to. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, he just does that throughout the whole movie. And it's charming in some places and not as much in others. Okay, so I have two major things about the movie that I want to talk about, Brad. I think the easier and quicker one is going to be, let's just talk about the Christmas of it all. Because Mm -hmm. this is one of those films that falls into a very specific Christmas film camp. I don't think it's like Die Hard, where you have to even wonder if it is a Christmas movie. Like It is a Christmas movie. Right. But there's a debate, right? Because Christmas is not really a part of the plot. It just happens to take place at Christmas. Mm -hmm. This is like one step above that. Because I do think that just on the surface of this movie... There's really no reason for this movie to have to take place at Christmas time. Like they could be going on a family vacation on the 4th of July or on Memorial Day or like whenever, and the movie would still work. But what they realized is adding the Christmas element will help underscore all of the emotional points that we need to make. And so like it's not really a Christmassy movie, but Christmas gives it a boost. Uh, I disagree with that wholeheartedly, Bob. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. The film is about family reconciliation. Correct. Right. And if there's anything about, if there's any time of the year that is all about family reconciliation, it's Christmas. Yep. Jesus is reconciling mankind to himself, Bob. Have you never read your Bible? (laughs) I love that you're just making my exact point for me in a more eloquent way, though, because like. You How could have a movie for you. Well, you could have a movie about family reconciliation set at any time of the year. That's what I'm saying is like it doesn't have to be a Christmas movie, but having it set at Christmas time gives the movie a boost. Whereas I think that there are other movies like you look at a movie like Miracle on 34th Street, where the entire movie is about Santa Claus. Like you can't set that movie on Labor Day. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but that's a pretty to say that. I, that's a very narrow definition of of like Christmas movies like that have to be about Christmas. Like It's a Wonderful Life doesn't have to be about Christmas. It could be about Uncle Billy losing the money at any time of oh, year. Oh, totally, and, and totally mortality. agree. Yeah, the, there's only but, like a little bit of Christmas in that movie. I'm not saying it makes a it a Christmas movie. I'm not saying it makes it makes anything a worse movie. I'm just trying to say that I think that when we talk about Christmas movies, there are like very distinct categories of how important is this being set at Christmas to the film itself? I have never once thought about a distinct category of how important Christmas is to the film. Man, I like, I absolutely love it when you are in one of your moods, man, and you come in here and you don't even engage. <laughs> like, I'm at least trying to have a, an entertaining conversation and you're like, nope, mm-hmm. this is dumb and I don't want to talk to you about it. I, I mean, that's not where I'm at. I just think that there's ne- like the only movie I've ever had a conversation about whether or not like it being set at Christmas matters is Die Hard. Mm-hmm. That's the only one where people who defend it being a Christmas movie are like, well, it's set at Christmas. And I'm me being like a huge defender of it. I'm like, well, there's so much more to why it's a Christmas movie. But I would agree with some people that would say if Die Hard was not set at Christmas, it would not be a Christmas movie. And so I'm like, yeah, it's important that it's set at Christmas and that helps make it a Christmas movie. I've never once thought about that being important for any other film. Like Home Alone is a Christmas movie. It's set at Christmas. It's about Christmas values. It's a Christmas movie. End point. (laughs) Okay. Maybe it would help for me to explain how I arrived at this whole category thing. Because Mm, yes, tell us your journey, Bob. I'm a big fan of this movie, Brad, and I don't ever want to give the impression on this episode that, like, I I don't like this movie. I like it very much, and my score will reflect that. I think sometimes when I'm being manipulated by a movie, even when it works and even when I go along with it, like this movie, while I'm watching it, I realize how they're manipulating me and why they're manipulating me. And and like at the end of the film, when Kevin's mom comes home and gives him a big hug and I start crying and then Kevin looks out the window and sees the old man hugging his granddaughter crying and John Williams is playing like 
Christmas, Christmas, Christmas in the background. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, this all would have worked if they set the movie in July, like emotionally. But the fact that it's Christmas is like they had they had a, a an ace in the hole. They had one up their sleeve that they were like, also, we're going to make it Christmas time. So you're going to cry twice as hard. And you see it like a like a fourth of July, like the final scene is Kevin's family out watching fireworks and he looks across the field and sees the old man sitting with his family at fireworks. <laughs> They're just like <laughs> holding a Roman candle together. Patriot, patriotism, <laughs> baby. I guess. So that's what I'm trying to say is like, I don't think there's anything wrong with making your movie be a Christmas movie just because it gives it even more manipulative elements. But I'm also well, like very aware of it while I'm watching it. Well, here's my question. When you use the word manipulative manipulation, are you using it? Because I would say that in our culture, manipulating something has a very negative connotation. Sure. Are you using it with a negative connotation? I think like most of the time when you see that word come up in a movie review, like critics mean it negatively. I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong. I think all good movies manipulate you one way or another. Yeah. If I'm ever going to use it negatively, it's because I think it's being done in a really cheap or easy way. And I think sometimes Christmas, like just making something be Christmas themed is a really cheap, easy way to build in emotions because people have such an emotional attachment to Christmas anyway. So it's like if your movie is a two and a half star movie, just making it be Christmas themed and having everybody hug at the end around a Christmas tree might bump it up to three stars just because it's Christmas and everyone wants to feel good at Christmas. Like. Green Book is a movie that absolutely did not need to be Christmas themed. And at the end, when they hug him and say Merry Christmas, I'm like, <laughs> it's the spirit of Christmas. You know, like that's yeah. that's just it's manipulation for manipulation's sake. And in this, I think in this case, it works. But I'm also like very aware of what they're doing. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I am so far. I, I am glad for your journey, and I'm so thankful that you shared it with us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, part of the reason that, that I went on that journey is is my second big point about the movie, which is that... I was like, you said that first point was going to be simple. I didn't think I'd get that much pushback <laughs> on it. I thought this was going to be like a 45-second point. <laughs> this is like two movies in one, Brad. In, in a really interesting way, because I feel like you could have made a full movie just about the Kevin getting left at home alone, his parents on a quest to get back to him before Christmas, and him being a kid and having fun and learning to go grocery shopping, and then you have a big reunion at the end, and that's like a full movie in itself. Mm-hmm. There's also with, with, like... With the burglars? With no burglars. With I no feel burglars. like the burglar part of the movie is a whole separate movie. And it's interesting because they find a way to make these two very disparate stories coexist in this movie. But I think when it's being done well, you forget about it. When it's not, I don't even want to say when it's not being done well, but there's other points of the movie where it's like Macaulay Culkin is inflicting medieval torture on two grown men. (laughs) And then the next morning, it's like, Kevin, Merry Christmas. And I'm like, well, that was whiplash. Like, I just watched him be an absolute demonic force for a half hour. And then, like, he's a cute kid again the next morning. And it's the spirit of Christmas. And I think that's kind of what made me even realize, like, oh, Christmas is really helping this movie out a lot. Because I think you would notice the whiplash of the two stories going back and forth if that Christmas element wasn't there. I mean, I, I think that the the movie hinges on two themes of family reconciliation and growing up, mm-hmm. right? Like, like those are the two things we're learning about here. And the burglars represent the growing up theme, and the old man, the, the what do they call him? the The South Side Snow Shovel Slayer, mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The old man represents the family reconciliation, and you know, and growing up, he faces his fears and talks to him for and, sure realizes that he doesn't have to be afraid of people who look scary. Important message for us all to all to hear. I think that the burglars really represent that element of growing up means you protect what you care about. 
And, you know, in a lot of literature and especially in the world of like, uh, like medieval fantasy, almost like D&D type world, there is this element of like, you haven't really uh, gained possession of something. You haven't really grown up until you have protected it, until Mm -hmm. you have defended it against an external force. Mm. And so the burglar of it all completely makes sense to me. And I, I think that the the script trick to make it mad, you know, make it a, around Christmas is good just to say, yeah, like burglars look for houses around times where people go on <laughs> yeah, vacation. Sure, sure. And like it like that's a simple enough explanation that I don't know, man. I I think that I think you're hung up on the whole like choosing to make it around Christmas so that they can have emotional impact. I I don't know <laughs> if that was like a I, deep thought. Like, I think they started with like, yeah, let's make a Christmas movie. Right. I don't think they started with let's make a, a growing up movie. And oh, I guess we could put it at Christmas. Sure. Well, I think that. what really happened because this was developed in like the late 80s was, you know, John Hughes went into some executive's office and in between him snorting mounds of coke. Yes. He was like, OK, I hear you have a Christmas movie. Can you make a child beat up two grown men like Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> And John Hughes and said, like, absolutely, I can. In the room, he had, like, two hired children beating up grown men. <laughs> and John Hughes was like, uh, 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 man, I don't know what's going on here, but sure. I'll do whatever you need me to do, man. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't mean to be this hung up on it. And in fairness, I was only 45 seconds worth of material hung up on it. And it turned into, like, an 11-minute <laughs> conversation. Uh, but, so, yes, I think that this movie is not a perfect movie, but... The Christmas of it all does a lot of heavy lifting and it makes the movie really work because I think you would notice the seams of it a little bit more between the two stories going back and forth. So, Brad, uh, let's please close that chapter and let's move into something else. (laughs) Uh, When we first started this episode, you said that the star of the movie was Catherine O'Hara, which is very much objectively not true, but tips tips me off a little bit that you have a favorite person in this movie. So before we even get to Macaulay Culkin, let's talk about your apparent MVP, Catherine O'Hara. I mean, let's just all agree. Uh, everybody, Film and Whiskey Nation, Bob, Brad. Catherine O'Hara is the biggest star of this film. Mm-hmm. That, like, she is Hollywood royalty, and it is on full display here. I don't know if I've ever seen a better mom performance in a movie wow the the all-time mom mvp mom mvp mom vp mom valuable player okay yes i'm so glad we get to talk about Catherine o'hara because i don't think we've ever done a movie with her in it uh we've never done any of those christopher guest movies that she loves to be in she's a incredibly talented comedian but what i think gets lost sometimes is how good of an actor she is. She's just an incredible actor and she doesn't really have, I don't think any truly funny moments in this movie. There's a couple scenes where she's kind of playing the straight man to John Candy and that polka band. And that's Mm -hmm. funny, but like her role in this movie is to be a mom who feels an insane amount of guilt over what's happened to her son and over everything that, you know, happened the night before when they punished him and put him up in the attic. So, she has to carry like almost all of the emotional weight of the movie, especially since Macaulay Culkin and we'll get to him. But like he's really good at standing still and waving and smiling and being very cute. And he's very good at like running around the house, setting booby traps, not a great deliverer of dialogue. And so he <laughs> no. also is not really carrying much of the emotional weight. And that's all on Catherine O'Hara's shoulders. And I think you're right, man. She knocks it out of the park. Yeah, I mean. Why do you think that they have one of the most famous lines of the movie delivered not by Macaulay Culkin, but by Macaulay Culkin playing a videotape of somebody else acting? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he like he's a fine kid actor. He is very cute. His moments of conflict with his siblings is actually, I think, some of his best moments. The The problem with this film is that I, I think and I could be wrong on this. I think a lot of kid actors do better 
when they are guided by a more experienced actor. For sure. And I, I think of like a Haley Joel Osment and Bruce Willis. Right? Like there there's not many scenes where it's just Haley Joel Osment. He's usually with an adult actor who can guide him along, help cover up some of the flaws. Macaulay Culkin is by himself for a lot of this film. And, you know, this is true about any actor of any age. To be by yourself on screen is an intimidating task. Mm -hmm. And all of your flaws can get exposed. And it gives you a chance to really show off. So I, I think Macaulay's fine. I think he does a good job. I just think he's an okay kid actor. Oh, for sure. I mean, go, go watch Richie Rich. Like, you know. But see, I was going to say, here's the thing about this movie being as successful as it was. I don't think people understand, you know, this movie wasn't the highest grossing film ever, but it took root among all of America's kids, all of America's moms. Like they wanted to see Macaulay Culkin on Good Morning America. You know what I mean? Like he was just a kid that became a mega star after this. It launched... And a hugely, incredibly successful career for him between this and Richie Rich and even lesser films like The Good Son. Like he was doing Page Master, all these movies for, I don't know, five, six years after this movie. And it's really possible that he was the most famous actor in Hollywood for a couple of years there because, you know, Stallone's movies weren't doing as well by the early 90s. Schwarzenegger was still really big. Julia Roberts was taking off around this time. But like. You know, Macaulay Culkin was uh, kind of problematically hanging out with Michael Jackson. I didn't see Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> hanging out with Michael Jackson. You know what I mean? Like, this kid was everywhere as a result of this movie. Oh, man. I never in a million years <laughs> expected us to dive into Michael Jackson territory <laughs> today. <laughs> hey, man, it's always a good day to dive into Michael Jackson territory. Oh, man. I Sure. I, I guess so, man. <laughs> Whatever you say. Okay, let's let's go through the rest of this cast. We've talked about the mom and the son. There are a few other people in this movie that when you're confronted with an actor like Macaulay Culkin, who is cute but limited in his range, I think it really opens you up to see how good some other people are and just how much Dude. of the movie they can carry. And, yeah. and, you know, like um, like Daniel Stern is is fine as as Marv and John Hurd is fine as the dad. They're both very good character actors. But then like Marv is a great name for that character. Oh, 100 percent. Like like just a perfect name. But then you see Joe Pesci, dude, who wins an Oscar this same year for Goodfellas. These, these are his two yeah. films of the year. And he is as good in this movie as he is in Goodfellas. Like I, I forget how actually good this performance is mm-hmm. it, it's incredible i i like to think that there's a world where this is like a just slightly younger joe pesci than we get in goodfellas and this is like his pre-organized crime days mm-hmm. that that he's off in chicago robbing houses with his inept like friend from high school mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Pesci is spectacular in this film, and the reason he's spectacular is because you can tell that he is doing everything possible to keep from cussing in every single scene. Yeah, he is like, one of I, the inventors of the phrase "raza fraza" when he gets yeah. hurt. <laughs> He just falls on the ice and, and he's like, oh, what's going on, Harry? He's like, like, to the point where I'm wondering, like, is he saying MF and they're just getting away yeah. with it? Because it sure sounds like it. Yeah, <laughs> it's incredible, man. And it, it lends to such a great performance. I, I think that it's one of it's like a master class in an actor taking something that he's known for. And, like, almost treating it as, like, a challenge. Okay. It'd be like Jack Nicholson entering a movie and be like, all right, I'm pretty good at anger. What if I didn't show any anger the whole film? Like, how would I create this character if he didn't have an angry bone in his body? Like, that's what you get here of, like, all right, I know that I can drop an F-bomb with the best of them. What would happen if I wanted to but wasn't allowed to Mm -hmm. and you have home alone joe pesci uh the last person i want to talk about i have to pull up his name again because it's such an interesting name it is 
His name is Roberts Blossom. First of all, an incredible name. It's the kind of name that you only get in 1924 when Roberts Blossom was born. But he plays the old man, appropriately Christmassy uh, named Marley in this movie. He is phenomenal. He is so good. Brad, I almost texted you halfway through this movie to say, you know what? Uh, Home Alone's really not that good. It's not as good as I remember it being. Because <laughs> there were a lot of filmmaking decisions, like, you know, when when Kevin first wakes up and is running around the house and they do it in, like, fast mo, and all the yeah. times he looks directly at the camera and breaks the fourth wall. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of kind of tacky. And then you get the, to the this... The Grinch was rising in your heart. It, truly. And then you get to this scene in the church where the old man gives his soliloquy and i'm also, like the the children's choir yes. just belting it and i am like i'm all in on this movie now like wherever this movie wants to go i am all in because of this old man like talk about carrying the emotional weight of a film he freaking killed it brad yeah also great lesson for adults talk to kids like they're real people you'll be amazed what you learn yeah, I, I know that Macaulay Culkin was reading off a script, but man, oh man, that was really important. And like, I think about Macaulay Culkin in this film, you know, Kevin McAllister. And I, I think about what if this was like a real life story? Like, A, he would have a lot of therapy to go to. Mm-hmm. But B, I would have to imagine that that conversation with uh, Robert's Blossom would rank up as one of the most important conversations in his life where an adult took him seriously for the first time in, you know, in this film or presumably in his life where an adult listened to his advice and and was like, man, I, I didn't think of it that way before. Like I can't imagine a world where that wouldn't be the most important conversation of his young life. And I think that's why home alone works as a movie is because it feels like the the emotional beats in the film truly feel impactful for the characters. Mm-hmm. And it's just it just hits so hard. And you're right, like once we get to the cathedral scene, man, the movie takes off. Uh Robert's Blossom who is clearly 95 years old in this movie? <laughs> yes. Was only 66 when he made this film. Really? Yeah, my man. Oh man, my man that's had like, lived uh, some life. That's like Richard Harris in the first two. <laughs> yeah, man. yeah, you're like, oh, Richard Harris has to be at least 107, right? And he, yeah, and he looked yeah. it up, and he's like 48. You're like, what? What's yeah. going on? I was gonna say, I I always thought he was in like late 70s, early 80s, and no. he's actually like 61. Yeah, yeah. In that film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, hey, before we go to break, I do have to say, uh, your your favorite person in the film, Uncle Frank. The character mm. was originally offered to Kelsey Grammer, Ooh. which makes a whole lot of sense because that dude it has does. the most assholey Frasier energy I've ever <laughs> seen. It, it would have been perfect for Kelsey Grammer, honestly. You know, I have only ever seen Kelsey Grammer in a Netflix movie that he did with Kristen Bell. I want to say, yikes! You know, where they like go on some cruise together and they're like an estranged father-daughter relationship i've never seen him in anything else so but he's still he's just kelsey Grammer in every movie like you you get a good (laughs) sense of it when you think about it here so okay brad i think we're in a good spot to hit pause let's go drink some bourbon and then we'll come back and keep talking about home alone what do you say let's get to it All right, so today we are checking out Lexington Bourbon, and we want to say, as we get into our whiskey review, if you're enjoying the podcast, wherever you're listening to this podcast, please like and subscribe. That way you get every single episode delivered to your inbox each and every week. You can also find us on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. We're on YouTube. All of them are under at Film Whiskey. So please give us a like, give us a follow. It helps keep us at the top of your feed and it helps spread the word of film and whiskey far and wide. Yeah. And if you really enjoy the content a lot, you can head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash film whiskey. Get all sorts of extra perks. It's incredible. Go subscribe. All right. Lexington bourbon. Here's the thing, Brad. 
I know very little about this bourbon. It was part of the OHLQ last call section a couple years ago. I don't know if it's because they stopped carrying it or if they just like redesigned the packaging and they were trying to get rid of the old stuff. It's a really cool looking bottle. It's it's pretty minimalist. It's just got a few stickers on the front, one of which is like an old west type portrait of a horse. It goes really well with the Lexington theme. Here's the thing I know about it though, Brad. It comes from a company called Western Spirits that own a few other brands like uh, Calumet Farms and Bird Dog Whiskey. It's not made in Kentucky. At least I don't think it is. It's definitely sourced because when you look at the back of the bottle, it says that this is bottled for Western Spirits by the Three Springs Bottling Company in Bowling Green, Kentucky. So we don't even know where Mm. it's made. It might be MGP. It might not. Uh, It is non-age stated, so we don't know how old all the whiskeys in this blend are. We know that they are a minimum of four years old. All we really know about it is that it is 86 proof. I have no mash bill, no uh, provenance on this. I will say, I don't usually like to poo-poo a company. Like, we usually say, Brad, (laughs) that if, I don't care if it's sourced as long as it's good. I do take a little exception to calling it Lexington Bourbon. And it has absolutely no affiliation with the city of Lexington, Kentucky. Like, that's a little bit, you, you know what I mean? Like, you're pushing it at this point. Yeah, a little bit. I I think that at this point, it feels like this is probably common enough practice that most whiskey people are kind of like, eh, whatever. Does it <laughs> taste good? But I, I am with you. It seems to be drawing upon the the region's, you know, notoriety. Uh, without actually having anything to do with the region, you know, we're not so, we're not big fans of Cleveland whiskey, but I would like it even less if they were like, oh, it's actually made in Detroit. We just bring yeah. it in, you know, <laughs> like okay, well, what the hell? Like you make bad whiskey and then you slap Cleveland on it, like just to make it, yeah. Come on, all right. Anyway, yeah, Lexington bourbon. Let's dive in, Brad. What are you picking up on the nose? Uh, on the nose here, I am getting a, a decent. Decently strong grain smell. It's very corn heavy. Um, I get some cream cheese, some vanilla, and I, I know that this is just like a a synonym for caramel. But I, I for some reason when I smelt it, it just popped into my my brain. Werther's original. Mm. I'm I'm having like specific whiskeys pop in my head as I nose this. I get a little bit of like Elijah Craig. It's got a good Heaven Hill kind of nose. But then I also get a little bit of like regular Woodford Reserve. It's got some of that maltiness that uh, I really I like, like. I like that your tasting notes have evolved from like actual things that people know and can <laughs> like think about to like, like now I just think in whiskey. Well, I think I'm trying to pinpoint like who made this for them and what does it remind me of? And so those were the first two that I got. And then underneath that really nice, almost like well-aged bourbon note, I get uh, like a candy apple. But it's it's like a green apple. It's almost like one of those green apple suckers. I get a lot of caramel and then like bright candy green apple on this. It's really nice. I just have no idea where that green apple note's going to go. Like, is it going to be a, a sign of a really young tasting whiskey? Is it just something cool that got added in there? I have no idea. I am going to give it a seven and a half on the nose. This is way better than I anticipated it being. Oh, I, I give it a six out of 10 on the nose. Wow. I, I thought that the graininess kind of detracted a little bit. Uh, luckily for Lexington, or is it Lexington, bourbon, uh, the taste came up quite a bit for me. On the palate here, I got a nice, strong caramel opening. There's some vanilla cake. There's some almonds. And I was so glad that you said green apple in the first half, Bob, because... For me, the green apple really came through on the palate. I give it a seven and a half here. I'm going to come down a little bit on my score, uh, on my tasting score, because it has a lot of really good flavors to it. And there's also like a lot of oak here that I I wonder if there's like some older stock blended in because it just tastes really well-rounded. It doesn't taste young at all, but it's super thin. Like the mouthfeel on this, when I first took a sip, From the front of my palate to the middle of my palate, all I could taste was like sugar water before any flavor came up. And it's really, really thin. I wonder how good this would be at like, you know, like a 94 proof, like an Elijah Craig. I think this would be significantly better. I like it and I think it tastes great, but it it almost gives the sensation of being watered down. So I'm just going to give it a six and a half on the flavor. 
Yeah, and and as we get into the finish, I think there's some nice fresh bread notes here. There's caramel drizzle. There's some black pepper. It gets just barely spicy at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a decidedly decent finish. I'll give a 7 out of 10. I have no idea how much, if any, malted barley is in this, but I think it gets a little bit uh, malty towards the end. There's a lot of oak. It doesn't really get bitter. But those kind of bitter notes definitely come out more than they did throughout the rest of the experience. Not a bad finish, but it's really, really short, like really short. And I think, again, that has to do with how proofed down this is. I'm going to give it a six and a half again. It's really good. But when I think about all the whiskeys I've ever had, it's I mean, you know, it, it doesn't really stand out, Brad. Yeah, there's not enough. There's not quite enough going on here for it to get high scores anywhere. I actually think that the balance here is decent. It has a very consistent flavor profile. There's not a ton of complexity, but there's there's enough variety here that I'll give it a 7 out of 10 on, on balance. I'm going to do the same. I think a 7 is a perfect score for this. It's really well balanced. It's just kind of like a well-balanced, slightly above average product. Yeah. So that yeah. takes us and- to value, and I have no idea how much this cost, Brad. I honestly can't remember. Uh, it's been so long since I bought this. I was convinced that we had already done this on the on the podcast before <laughs> to the point where, like, I was furiously searching our website earlier and, trying to find. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I know we've done this. We have not. But that also tells you how long it's been since I've bought it. So what's it going mm-hmm. for nowadays? Um, I see it anywhere from like thirty five to forty dollars online. Uh, that's a six out of ten for me. Yeah, I said six and a half. If it was twenty five. It'd be like fine. But. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I I had six and a half. Uh, it's a decent value. I think that there's a lot of better whiskeys you can get for thirty eight, thirty nine dollars. If you are looking for a classic bourbon experience, this is a a decent value. Bob, my my total is coming out to a thirty four out of fifty. I am at a thirty three point five out of fifty. So we're at a thirty three, yeah, thirty three point seven five on average, or a sixty seven and a half out of one hundred. Yeah, this is like a solid. You know, I know sixty seven is a failing score on the American grading system, but like, you know, this is like a C level whiskey. There's nothing wrong with it. It would make an okay cocktail, but I still think it's a little bit too low proof to really stand out anywhere. I think it would be a good whiskey for people who are just getting into bourbon. There's a lot of sweetness mm-hmm. here, and it gives you like an introduction to what multi notes and oak taste like. But again, like at thirty five dollars, I just I would just say go buy Elijah Craig or something instead. Yeah, I, I think that's the big problem here. If this was a twenty, it, heck, if this was a twenty dollar whiskey, I'd be like, oh my gosh. This is this is like worlds apart. This is, you know, one of the best value whiskeys. At $38, I don't know if I'd ever recommend buying this. Yeah, I'm in the same spot, man. So I think the whiskey is going to be a little bit lower in our estimation than the movie today. But what do you say we get back into talking about Home Alone? I'm ready for it, man. Let's get to it. All right, everybody, that was Lexington Bourbon, a whiskey that we are glad to be done with Mm. because Home Alone is a heck of a movie to talk about, Bob. It sure is, Brad. And I am putting my 2-0 record at our next game on the line today. Folks, we're talking about two facts and a falsehood. Brad is going to try to stump you, Bob, to our right and what is wrong. Two facts and a falsehood. Two facts and a falsehood is the part of the show where Brad presents three items to me as fact about the making of this movie, one of which he has completely made up, and I have to figure out which one that is. Brad, as I said, and will continue to say, your boy is undefeated on the season. <laughs> you sure are, Bob. <laughs> I'm very proud of you. And you're yet you're I, doing great. I was going to say, and yet I am, I am in constant peril because I'm undefeated, <laughs> but it's only been two weeks. It has. Yeah, I was say, how do you feel about your 2-0 record, Bob? Let's let's dive into your psychology. Here. I feel like I'm two games above 500. You know, I've got a little <laughs> cushion here. I can slack off for at least two weeks before I have to really take it seriously again. <laughs> well, hopefully this will be a challenge for you, Bob. Are, are you ready for your three facts? Yeah, let's do it. Fact number one, director Chris Columbus's biggest fear when he was a child was that burglars would break into his home at night. 
Fact number two, John Candy and Catherine O'Hara were good friends. Having worked together previously on SCTV in 1976, O'Hara actually gave the eulogy at his funeral after his sudden passing. Fact number three, director Chris Columbus often brought his own kids with him on set, and the battle plan drawn in Cran by Kevin was actually drawn by Columbus and his children. Huh. Man, these are really good. You said fact number one was John Hughes saying that he got the inspiration because he was afraid of burglars as a kid? Yeah, essentially. Okay. Huh. Man, I don't know. I imagine that Catherine O'Hara and John Candy might have been close. I just don't know if John Candy was really working as much in 1976. That seems early, but maybe he was. Um, I don't know, man. I'm going to say three sounds like it could be false, but I'm going to go with two as the falsehood just because of the year you gave. I have absolutely no other basis for it, but I'm going to say two is the falsehood. Bob... You have been killing it on the season, 2-0. and What an incredible record. Oh, no. You are no longer no! undefeated. Was it number three? Was number three the false? It, it was number three. Ah, I knew they probably just had a, like the art director make that, not Chris Columbus's kids. I legitimately was like, man, I feel like this is a pretty weak two facts and a falsehood. And that's why I, I think I stuffed it in the end. I was like, let's let's get Bob to focus on the first two. <laughs> yeah, man, that was good. Well done. Thank you, sir. Yeah. So apparently uh, I, I didn't put this in because I thought it would tip you off. John Candy actually passed away on Catherine O'Hara's 40th birthday. Oh, gosh. And and she ended up doing the eulogy for him. Man. Really sad. John Candy. What what a gem. What? Yeah. Yeah. I I am very sad. That that candy passed away at I, I think he was like forty three. Mm. Uh, what a sad sad loss because a true comedic talent mm-hmm. like planes trains and automobiles. Come on, it's it's just perfect. John Candy's always one of those guys that I, I I tell people about when they like when they make note of people with interesting faces in Hollywood. You know, like there's a big debate going around right now about Adam Driver. And whether or not he's actually attractive because he just has such an interesting looking face. <laughs> he does have an interesting looking face. But I always tell people like, you think you understand what people in Hollywood look like because you see them all the time. But you don't understand how symmetrical people's faces are or how actually mm-hmm. good looking they are until you put them in a crowd of regular looking people. And you're like, yeah. OK, I know why the camera likes you now. And John yeah. Candy you know, he was a very big man and he that contributed to his death. Eventually, he got bigger and bigger. John Candy's a legitimately very good looking man. Like if you ever see pictures of him, especially in his younger days, like you can understand, oh, his face is put together in a way that makes sense why he got to Hollywood. It's very symmetrical. <laughs> it's very classically good looking. And, you know, you just don't think of like John Candy being a good looking guy. But I'm telling you, people, stop and think about it for a little bit. John Candy colon sex symbol <laughs> is that what you said to carrie when you met her like girl That's actually... your face is well put together have i ever told you how symmetrical you are <laughs> 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 all right man let's get back into talking about this movie where do you want to go from here uh john williams yeah i knew it was coming you you mentioned him i will never let us get through a john williams composed movie without dedicating at least 60 seconds Mm -hmm. to his brilliance. Here's the thing with John Williams. Hmm. How do I say this without angering Brad? Oh, man. By far the most popular and perhaps the greatest of all film composers ever. And quite prolific. Quite prolific. And I think that's the point I want to make. As good as this soundtrack is, as good as this score is, and it is a freaking banger. Yep. There are moments where I'm like, oh, he reused that. He reused that theme right there. There's a moment Mm -hmm. when he's running out of the church after he talks with the old man and and he starts playing this little theme. And then it comes back again when Kevin is laying the ornaments under the window for Marv to step on. And it is Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter. 100%. 100%. And I'm like, oh, come yeah. on, John Williams. You know, again, yeah. Kevin's, I guess... Kevin's about to jump on a broom and... When you make that off. many scores, it's forgivable. But it's also like, you know, 
Come on, man. I like you. You very clearly just recycled this into <laughs> into Hedwig's theme. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the most egregious example of that that I've ever heard is during the battle at the start of Gladiator. There's it's just Pirates of the Caribbean out of nowhere. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, wait, is that Pirates? Uh, oh, no, that is 100 percent like the Pirates of the Caribbean theme song. Note for note. That's like hilarious. he didn't even try to change it a year later to. Well, I guess. What was it? 2003. Yeah, it was, was like Pirates three years later. So. so like three years later, he didn't even try to change any of the notes. Yeah, at least John Williams waited a full decade, decade plus yeah. for Harry Potter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, and I will say, because I'm a huge John Williams fan, that makes sense to me mm-hmm. that like Williams had this tiny little, you know, four note, eight note sequence that kind of stuck in his brain. and It was an earworm. And as a composer, he's like, I want to do something with that eventually. And sure, 10 years later, you get a chance to write a movie about a magical child and, and you're like, oh, I, I think this will fit. That that makes sense to me. Uh, you can't talk bad about my boy. No. But I will agree with you. If you follow John Williams enough, there are definitely so many moments where, he, like in Indiana Jones, you're like, oh, there's a little bit of Star Wars there. And in Harry Potter, you're like, oh, yeah, sure, there's a little Home Alone there. Mm-hmm. And, and in Jurassic Park, there's moments that recall some of his other films. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think I've I've grown enough to say... I appreciate that more than I think it's a detraction. No, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. You know, we've talked about the composer Thomas Newman a lot on this podcast. He's he's mm-hmm. done a ton of movies and every single one sounds exactly the same. Like if you put on yeah. a Thomas Newman playlist on Spotify, you would get music from Finding Nemo and you'd get music from American Beauty back to back and you would not know which one was from which movie because they just sounded exactly <laughs> the same. And that's totally yeah. okay. And And with John Williams, like there's moments in this movie where he has like a um, like a clarinet trio kind of playing. And it reminded mm-hmm. me a ton of the clarinet stuff from The Terminal, which is a sound like yes. one of his scores that I really love that never gets enough credit. But like, I'm OK with that. It's cool that you have these kind of musical hallmarks that I can listen to a score and just think, oh, this is probably John Williams. Like I hear enough in this that sounds like his tendencies that I can pinpoint it. And that's cool because it's like you're you know, it's like the Wet Bandits. He has his yeah. calling card. <laughs> he sure does. The wet bandits. That's one of my favorite conversations of the film. When, when Pesci and uh, what's um, what's his name? The actor. Uh, Daniel Stern. Yeah. When, when Pesci and Stern are talking about the, being the wet bandits. That just kills me every time, man. All right, Brad, before we wrap up today, I, I want to pick your brain a little bit about Going back to the John Hughes, everyone is mean thing, just like one of the big Mm -hmm. takeaways from the movie for me is is that I'm not entirely sure that Hughes did a great job in setting up the the character arc of Kevin, because like you, you said it yourself, this is a movie. It's a coming of age movie. It's a movie about Kevin learning to grow up a little bit and to appreciate what he has. But the problem is. In order to like spark that journey, you need Kevin to really reject his family. Like you need him to push them away so that he can learn that he needs them. And he has Mm -hmm. his moment where he says, like, I wish everybody were invisible or I wish everybody would go away. The problem is like. He says that and I'm with him. I'm like, yeah, these people suck. Like, (laughs) I want them to go away, too. But you you need Kevin to kind of be, you know, for lack of a better term, the bad guy. You need him to be in the wrong and learn his lesson. And I feel like he Hughes goes so overboard in everyone being horrible to Kevin that his reaction is actually like really justified. And yep. and so it doesn't really make sense that he's the one that needs to go on this journey of discovery, because at the end of the movie, like his mom seems to have softened a bit, but the rest of his family still pretty much sucks. Yeah. Buzz says one nice thing to him, but Buzz still sucks. The dad still sucks. Like, I'm just not sure that we sent the right character on the hero's journey here. Yeah, clearly it needs to be Buzz. Like, (laughs) like if we're stuck on the idea of a kid going through this journey of growing up, like Buzz is the worst. And, And the way the movie treats it is like, this is just he is who he is and this is who he's going to be. For forever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, Buzz, uh, 
he's got some work to do because my my boy's gonna be a terrible human being. It's <laughs> <laughs> taken after Uncle Fr- Uncle Frank a little bit. It got me thinking that I think if I was gonna make an alternate cut of this movie, though, the only two characters who recognize and acknowledge what a brilliant and special kid this is are the wet bandits. Like they they see <laughs> they see his skills for exactly what they are. They respect yeah. him, they engage with him as a peer. I think this should be a movie where Kevin gets abandoned by his family, left home alone on Christmas, and then gets recruited by the wet bandits to become the the crime kings of the tri-state area. Oh, and and he's like actually the brains behind the operation. And they form a little makeshift family. You get a nice little road trip of them robbing houses and stuff. I think that's that might be the better movie. That's well, no. So I, I think you keep Home Alone as is <laughs> and then forget New York City. Home Alone 2, Kevin joins the Wet Bandits. Yep. Opening scene is Kevin visiting them in prison and like formulating this plan with them <laughs> to break them I, out. I think I think that's a heck of a follow up movie. <laughs> Yeah, man. Uh, just give me 30 seconds, though, on like, do you agree with me about the the kind of deficiencies in developing the reason that Kevin needs to be the one growing here? I mean, I, I think that there is an element of like his family is the one who needs to grow because they really suck. Like when when Buzz is pretending to barf up the pizza and Kevin runs at him and like, you know, half tackles him because his brother's like 10 years older. I don't know if I've ever seen a more realistic, relatable scene in a movie where I'm like, yeah, that is exactly what an eight year old little boy would do. He would try to tackle his older brother Mm -hmm. that like that makes complete sense to me because his older brother sucks and is being a dick. I think that where it works for me is in the element that they do set up Kevin as being needy, that he can't pack his own suitcase, that well, I, I don't want to sleep with Fuller. Like, I, I don't want to be with him when he wets the bed. And and there's all these things where it's like he just keeps whining to the people around him rather than taking things into his own hands and dealing with the issues as they come along. And I think that's kind of the moral of the story is that growing up means that as you face problems, you figure out solutions and make plans and enact those solutions. And it doesn't mean you don't ask for help. It just means that you take a little initiative of your own. Hmm. And, and so I, I think you're you're mostly right. But I, I think there's an element where they set it up well of Kevin's growth story and why it needs to happen. Yeah. Well, I, I think at the end of the day, what the moral of the story is, is that Buzz had better watch his back because I've seen what this kid can do now. <laughs> and, and it is truly, truly demonic. Yeah. All right, man, it's time for us to get into our last segment of the day, which we call Let's Make It a Double. Bob, you've used the word demonic like multiple times to describe <laughs> Macaulay Culkin. What's what's going on here, man? I like, just, like, what, do you it, have a personal... It goes like, beyond mischievous. Like, my man, my man tied a, a light string to the end of a steaming hot iron <laughs> at the top of a laundry chute. Like, that, that, that takes a level of sociopath tendencies... That is unparalleled in in film. Well, let, let's let's get into that a tiny bit. What do you think it is about the battle sequence, if we can call it that, that works so well and is so funny and is like the thing people remember about the film, but seemingly is off putting to you a little bit? It's not at all. Honestly, I'm just giving you a hard time. And and th- okay. I think the thing about this movie that is so refreshing is. It came from an era, I hate to say an era, because it still seems like this is a modern movie, but where we could still have slapstick comedy in a movie and that people weren't constantly trying to be like, that's a fatality. That's not, that can't happen. Because I kept trying to get my kids to watch this movie with me, knowing that we had to record it. And I don't know why, but my older son thought that there were vampires in the movie. He kept being (laughs) like, I don't want to watch it. It sounds scary. When did the vampires come? And I'm like, dude, there's no vampires. They would not watch this movie. They're playing in another room while I was watching it. And then right when it hit 9 p.m. and the burglars were coming, they decided to just walk in and see what was going on with the movie. Mm -hmm. They were all in. As soon as Joe Pesci hits that icy step and flies backwards. Obviously. 
I have yeah. not heard my kids laugh that loud in a long time. And boy, mm-hmm. oh boy, does it make a heart warmed to see children laughing at slapstick violence? Because it was, yeah. it was just, you know what I mean? Like for all the stupid things I could say about this movie and, oh, it's really violent. Like my three-year-old was watching this and freaking cackling. It was so funny to him. It just works, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that the the main reason it works is because Columbus keeps it from running on too long. Mm-hmm. Like you remember this as the primary part of the film, but it only takes up about 15 minutes. Yep. And I think that other directors would have let it go on for much longer. And Columbus has the wisdom to keep it a nice, tight 15 minutes. Great slapstick comedy. Let's move on to the emotional payoff of the film. Yep. Yeah, man. Totally agreed. So you you thought you were going to get a gotcha moment on me, but I'm I'm with you. I think the slapstick <laughs> works perfectly for all the things I can say about how sociopathic this kid actually is, if you think about it. Like, at the end of the day, it works. He is a heroic defender of his home, Bob. He's not a sociopath. <laughs> okay, now it's time for us to get to our last segment of the day, which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's make it a double is the part of the podcast where we pick a movie to pair up with this one to make the perfect double feature. And Brad, I don't know if I ever noticed just how many P letters I say in that sentence, but what what an instance <laughs> of alliteration. Yeah, it's incredible, Truly Bob. great writing. Uh, I love it every week. <laughs> All right, man, you go first. What would what would be your perfect movie pairing to go with this one? I think I'm going to lean into the chaotic child element of this film. Mm-hmm. And I am going to pair this with a classic film of my childhood. 1993's Dennis the Menace, mm. which includes the incredible Walter Matthau, but more importantly, Christopher Lloyd playing a character named Switchblade Sam. Mm. Christopher Lloyd really making a name for himself in like kooky villain parts at this part of his career. (laughs) Yes. This is right around when he did uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit as one of Mm -hmm. the scariest villains of my childhood. Yeah. (laughs) I, you know, I've never actually seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, it's a good one. Yeah, you'd like it. But that's not your pick. Your pick is Dennis the Menace, a film that I have to imagine for non-English speakers the title is very confusing because it rhymes, but those two words are not spelled alike at all. <laughs> Dennis, <laughs> that would the be Mines. confusing. All right. Uh, for mine, I'm going to go with another movie that has to do with a person being left alone. Uh, I think some of the, my favorite parts of this movie are Kevin just figuring out how to do stuff. Like when he finally <laughs> figures away. out. It is Castaway. Thank you. It is? F*** you, man. I was trying to <laughs> build it up. <laughs> I was guessing. <laughs> it's Castaway. I think like what a movie. If you want to see it done better, watch Castaway. Tom Hanks, not Macaulay Culkin, learning how to survive. And you get a great emotional payoff at the end of the movie. So, yeah, I would go back to back with Home Alone and Castaway. That that would be a heck of a movie night. (laughs) (laughs) It, It would really put you through the ringer, though. Oh, man. When uh, when Hanks is at his his wife, ex wife's house. And there's the pictures of her new husband oh. and all the pictures oh. he should have been. What? That's what Macaulay Culkin really needed was a Wilson. He needed like a little friend yeah. on the journey. Oh, that man, a pet. Like Dis- Disney understands the value of giving their princesses a pet. Mm-hmm. I-, I think they were missing a little something here, man. Give them like a little rat or something to follow him around. Yeah. All right, man. It's time for final scores. Brad, I'll go first. I'm going to give this movie a very strong... 7.5 kind of similar to what i did with batman last week uh it, it's like it's a really good movie and i think the last 35 minutes are like a 9 out of 10 but the first half of the movie is wildly uneven i think some of the filmmaking is pretty amateurish and like it just doesn't really click until you get to that scene in the church and from then on it really takes off but I can't just score it on the last part of the movie. I have to score the whole thing in in total. And I think that it, you know, because of the John Williams score, because of the great performances and the way that the filmmaking is in the latter part of the movie, it bumps it up to a 7.5. Yeah, I, I'm at a very similar place to you, Bob. I'm at an 8 out of 10 for Home Alone. 
I think that there is so many reasons that this is a Christmas classic. It, it pulls on the heartstrings. It gives you laughs. It gives you drama. There, there are so many great elements to this film that it just makes so much sense to me that people keep coming back to this film year after year. So if you haven't watched Home Alone in a few years, go give it a watch. At the very least, put it on your list for next Christmas. It is just such a fun, heartwarming film. All right, that will do it for us today. We're coming out to an average of a 7.75 out of 10, but we'd like to know what you think. So if you've seen Home Alone, if you love or hate Home Alone, let us know. You can find us on all of our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at Film Whiskey. Or you can join us on our Discord. We are on there every single day talking to you the fans of the Film & Whiskey podcast. So jump onto the Discord so that we can have conversations around the things we care about. You can find a link to it at the end of every single one of our show notes. Next week, 1991, we are watching a film that neither Brad nor myself have ever seen. It is the Kevin Costner follow-up after Dances with Wolves, Robin Hood, colon, Prince of Thieves. Mm. I'm pretty excited, man. It's, it's really rare that we get a movie that neither of us has seen. Yeah, I am. I'm wildly excited. This is one where, like, I know I've seen clips of this, but there is no chance I've ever watched it. So <laughs> this will be a fun one. All right. We'll see you next week for that. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. 